You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. say that every year London has 40 nights of fog. And who will they murder tonight, I wonder? Every morning, the police discover a new victim. Who's the dead man? The crime wave continues, and Scotland Yard combs the harbor in search of the madman. Where is he? Who is he? calls itself that because they pull their crimes in the middle of the night. Watch it, it's hot. Very hot. Fear reigns. Danger lurks everywhere. And the police are powerless. Terror grips another victim. And another. And still another. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello. Also back in the booth is Dr. Nicholas Schlegel. Hello. On this special episode, we are looking at a pair of crimmy films, Dead Eyes of London and Creature with the Blue Hand. What is a crimmy film, you ask? Or maybe you didn't ask that. I can't hear you. Well, either way, we'll be discussing that as we go ahead. Know that there's an element of mystery to both of these films we're discussing today, and we plan on ruining that mystery for you. You have been warned. We're going to start with Dead Eyes of London from 1961, directed by Alfred Vorher. The film concerns a string of killings of foreign men in the fog of London by a ring of blind men. Nick, when was the first time you saw the Dead Eyes of London, and what did you think? I came to the Crimmies rather late. I write about in the book, in, in the introduction, that my first sort of like ephemeral contact with them was in the Sinister Cinema catalogs of Film Facts, you know? They had the little Edgar Wallace section in there with maybe six or seven films, and the pedigrees uh, of which uh, Dead Eyes of London was one of them, and the pedigrees looked really impressive. The, I knew the actors. Obviously, Kinski was in several of them. 
but I wasn't quite motivated enough to get a hold of them through Sinister Cinema. And so it just kind of it it kind of just percolated in in the back of my my mind for a long time that there's this unique outpost of German cinema that I really need to you know get into eventually. And I think it was when I finished the last book that I really kind of went out to see what had been written about it in the English language. And at that time, there wasn't much. Sam had written some stuff and continues to write really amazing material on it, but in English, there just there was no there was no book length study and there was no. Uh, there was a few chapters here and there in like edited anthologies, but no, no deep dive into it. And yet in Germany, it was so pop, unbelievably popular. So it was right around then, around 2014, 2015, that I started amassing the library of, of Krimis. And one of the very first ones I watched was Dead Eyes. So I saw maybe fifth or sixth in the, in the rotation, and it immediately became – and still remains top three of the most important crimmies, top two maybe, but it's just a personal favorite too. I loved everything about it. You know, it does it does mark the introduction of of Vorher to the series as well as Kinski, as well as the blood color titles over the, the black and white stock. That was the first in that film too. So it kind of really heralds itself as uh as quote unquote important and it really amps up the horror elements that the previous three films, the three Rialto films were somewhat it was somewhat attenuated in that, except for you know the very first film, which really revels in its violence. But the next two are a bit lighter, and then when we get to to Dead Eyes, it's really in gothic horror territory, you know. And in some ways, it, it really stamped itself as unique on me, and it, it remains one of my favorites. Sam, how would you define what a crimi is? It's basically a nickname that comes from criminal film, which just means crime film, which of course these are anything but straightforward crime films. The best way to describe them to genre film fans is to sort of say that they're like a mystery focused precursor to the Jalo movies. That's definitely how I came across them. I randomly, when I was like probably 20 or 21, found this disc that was this like really poorly produced double feature of this uh, Italian gothic horror movie, The Ghost with Barbara Steele. And for whatever reason, Dead Eyes of London was the second film, like the double feature under the title Dark Eyes of London, which is the, the name of the novel. And so it was also my first creamy film, and I had no idea what to expect. Part of why these are still not popular with genre film fans is A, because there's not really a good resource on how to find them. They're not readily available if you don't speak German. And unlike a lot of the Italian releases, the German discs, even if you're a collector and you know you have an all-region player, most of those German releases do not have English subtitles. So if you don't have some background in German, it's like wandering in the dark trying to find them, at least as of the last couple years, I think that's gotten easier. But they are such a perfect mashup of crime and gothic horror and comedy to a certain extent and police procedural that it's, it is really hard to just define them in a sentence. Now, the name Edgar Wallace has come up a few times just in the first few minutes of us recording. To be a crimi, does it have to be based on a book by Edgar Wallace? And who is Edgar Wallace? 
This is one of those questions where, like, when you ask what is film noir, people get their panties in a bunch and everybody has a different answer. I feel like, so Edgar Wallace is a British mystery writer, which also is hard to explain to people because they're like, why is this German series based on the work of a British writer from, like, the 20s? It just makes no sense. But I think the classic creamy films are based on Edgar Wallace books. And then you have these like secondary titles that are usually based on books written by his son, Brian Edgar Wallace. So I think as long as it's written by a Wallace. Nick, who was Edgar Wallace? Kim Newman, I think, very brilliantly put his finger right on it when he said he's sort of the David Hasselhoff of... uh of, of, of literature in 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 uh, in Germany, I mean, he was a very prolific author. I mean, he wrote just under two hundred novels, about close to a thousand short stories, about uh, two dozen stage plays, you know, and they were all kind of hatched from the same type of um, DNA, you know, and that they all they all didn't really alter from each other very much. But he was capable of dictating them, you know, in in, in massive amounts. And they were extraordinarily popular. I mean, they was it was Dickensian, really. I mean, these things were in these these uh, novels were in the hands of of from from you know popes to chimney sweeps, as, as, as the old expression goes. And of course, um, as Tim Lucas has written a lot about, you know, he's one of the the first draftsmen of of RKO's King Kong. You know, so I mean, he kind of really had a a, a big part in the in the early stages of that before he died. He's still extraordinarily popular in among many generations in Germany. The one generation he's lost some pull with would be Gen Z. Uh, millennials are hip to him because of their parents and grandparents, obviously Gen X and above. But yeah, he's not really as well known among the real youth culture of Germany. But I, I was when I was in Germany doing research, I, I was just I was really astounded at the depths to which. Wallace meant to so many people in Germany, in both West, East and West Germany. And so I really kind of wanted to tackle the book with a certain amount of reverence for that, you know, but also, yeah, like Sam says, it, they, they are an incredible mashup of, of so many different sort of genres and subgenres. They have that James Bondian supervillain thing going on as well, which is and, – and the other thing that, that Sam pointed out was, yeah, that Arthur Broner CCC – uh, kind of muscled in on the racket to try and um, they they had secured the rights to Brian Edgar Wallace's work. And so they were doing these sort of copycat films and they were kind of, you know, uh, aping the, the same um, artwork on the posters. They were sort of stealing actors over when they, when, when they were free. <laughs> and so they were trying to sort of just conflate the popularity of the Rialto and they didn't make nearly as many because, uh, they, you know, for, for various reasons, one being just product shortage of, of novels. There's you know only so many they could use. I find a huge difference between the Rialto and CCC yeah. films. Um, I enjoy the CCC films, but they're not really part of like that Rialto, what I call, but I'm certainly sure I'm not the first one to call it that, but I call it like the Crimiverse, you know? That's also why I feel like they're the secondary titles, because they don't have a lot of those major players. I mean, Arthur Browner is a fascinating figure, and I feel like we have way too much to say to talk about him in depth, but he 
definitely had a way of poaching things for his own studio, but he still couldn't get all the, like, I think most important players away from Rialto because they just, they almost had this little, like, network of the same, this, like, pool of directors and writers and cast and crew members. So you see sort of like you do with with Jalo films in Italy, but even more tightly knit. There's just like this specific group of people who made the core creamy films, which I think is so fascinating. And it also makes it worthwhile if you can, if you, you know, watch a couple of the films and you fall in love with them and you can track a bunch down. It's great to see the ways in which they use their stock actors. And in some of the later films, they start to switch people up because you have these typical actors who play the sort of heroic detective and the older kind of stodgy inspector and the comic butler and the token bad guy. And then later on, they kind of start to interchange them. And it, it's even more fun when you can see what they're doing and how they're trying to mess with your head. To try and keep things fresh, they would just have, once you thought you had a character actor peg, I make many alliterations in the in the book to uh, the comparable business model is very much hammer you know it's it's yeah it's totally. it, it's it's sort of the exact same vibe you know a village of talent a very close-knit run studio everybody you know christmas parties the whole nine yards everybody friendly and if you didn't fit in you didn't work on many films you know it was it was pretty pretty obvious that is a really perfect parallel i didn't even think of that I was at the Browner Archive. He was still alive at the time uh, a couple of summers ago. But I, I kind of – the trail went cold for me. I'm like, you know, I will I will talk about these films as I need to, but I'm going to make the focus of this book on the Rialto films. But yeah, Browner did so much for the crime genre in the early 50s, you know. It's like you can, one can almost argue that Rialto kind of poached – Browner's territory in the in the first place because he was making these these crime movies uh, that were flash in the pans. They didn't really catch on quite quite as much, and yet they're really quite good. Some, several of them, and then they kind of just dissipated, and then Rialto kind of took the baton and ran with it. You know, they found the formula. <laughs> exactly, found the formula. Yep. Nick, you've mentioned the book a few times, and for people that don't know, what is the book that you're talking about? Tis folly to try and write a book when and when on something called the tenure track. You know, when you're when you're trying to get promotion and tenure at a university, it's really a dumb, dumb, stupid idea to say <laughs> I'm going to write a book. You know, I'm going to try and prove my worth and make these people you know impressed. And, and it was just pure masochism. I should have done it a slightly different way, but I was eager to try and, as my old advisor used to say, cut down some trees. And, and and leave a little piece of me behind again and, and and start bring up the pen and see what would happen. You know, ultimately it turned into a book that its current title is, because it's had several, is German Popular Cinema and the Crimi Phenomenon, Dark Eyes of London. There's a little colon right there. Really, it goes back to the end of World War II to look at the formation of German popular cinema because there was the big film pause after the Second World War. As you guys are well aware, most Cinema producing cultures uh, had relatively ceased production in Berlin. Studios were either demolished or or seized. So there was a big film pause, and then there was a re-education on the and the part of the Allied occupation to sort of bring in 
Hollywood films that would reinforce kind of democratic ideologies. And to Germany's shame might be a bit strong, but they they really resisted that. And I'm not saying that sort of the cultural imperialism of Hollywood films was what they were supposed to do, but they didn't want to sort of like deal with the war uh, and the aftermath of the war. And one of the ways in which they do that is they come up with the Trummer film. Are either you familiar with the rubble films of, of post-World War II Berlin? I imagine you are, Sam. I'm not sure if Mike is. I recently watched uh, The Apple Fell, which seems like it was shot in rubble, but I'm not sure if that counts. I don't know that one. The first one was called The, the Murderers Are Among Us. And it was made yeah, in they're amazing. 46. I fit. Yeah. I figured Sam with, with what you, with, with what you've been writing lately, that it would be something you would know very well. So I, I kind of traced the origins of all that. And then how, how eventually German popular cinema comes to dominate for the next 20 years. And then how basically that then all goes up in flames too, you know, and, by that time, I think the the Oberhausen Manifesto had gained, you know, in popularity among the sort of young Turks uh, filmmakers of, of, of Germany and that would come to dominate the new German cinema of the 70s. And and it was all over. And it's a pity because that this whole era, you know, the the, the schnitzel westerns and the Heimat film and the, the Commissar X films and uh, the the. Carl May Winnetou film. All of the German popular cinema of this era is beautiful, as I'm sure both of you would agree. It's, I mean, it's shot by former UFA technicians and craftspeople. You know, I mean, they they are gorgeous to look at, and yet they were kind of just really relegated to the dustbins in Germany. You know, kind of swept under the rug. It's such a strange set of circumstances. I just wrote about the rubble films a lot because I have a book coming out soon about European art house films in World War II. And so I spent a lot of time thinking and writing about the ways that different countries who played a part in the war, either as Axis powers or as countries who were occupied how they dealt with the war in cinema in the sort of immediate decades after it. And it's so kind of frustrating to look at the way that, and I'm sorry, I keep bringing this back to Italy and Jalo films, but it's sort of frustrating to look at the way that other countries dealt with genre cinema as compared to Germany, especially in terms of like sci-fi and horror movies. You have this real lack of films being made And I think some of it is that Germany just did not want to deal with the war. And a lot of those rubble films are this very hard to describe blend of depressed, traumatized, miserable people trying to return home to homes that have either been destroyed or somebody else has moved in or something terrible has happened. But the movie is like forced to have this optimistic ending. So they can't really say, all right, how are we going to deal with what we did and what we took part in? They're just like, okay, it's over. Now we're going to survive. The German horror movies, the few that exist from the 60s around the time the the creamy were being made are all really kind of like low budget and schlocky. And I think they're fun, but it's almost like they were afraid to deal with more serious themes And so I think a lot of that gets 
maybe on purpose, but maybe accidentally pushed into the creamy films where you have this continuation of the crime film serials that Fritz Lang was making in the 20s, where you have this like vast criminal conspiracy network headed by these sort of Mabuza-like villains, but in this almost cartoonish way that I think makes them so fun and so special. But it's also just like such a strange combination of genres. While I was doing my research for this, I really knew nothing coming in. And obviously, talking with you guys, I know a fraction of what you know. But I was so fascinated by the idea of Edgar Wallace and that his career hasn't really stopped. He was a, as far as I remember, he's a Black Mask writer. We've talked about Black Mask on the show before when it came to um, Hammett and other writers. Uh, I think even Robert E. Howard. We've got that going on. He has stuff being adapted by Hollywood. He even directs a few films, produces a few films. I think the first adaptation was way back in 1915. And other than the five-year period of time around 1990, and there was a five-year period of time, not even five years, around 2014, where there wasn't a adaptation of a Wallace work. And that also includes King Kong, because he's credited with the character of King Kong. But for so many years, every year, you would have one, if not two, if not three, Wallace films being made, and it was just amazing to look at. He's got 231 credits on IMDb, and okay, maybe 1915 there wasn't one, but you'd probably get two in 1916. You know, those kind of things where it's just like massive amounts of adaptation. So as we're talking about Dead Eyes of London, it's actually been remade, or this is like the third time, or at least the second time that it's been adapted, and plus there are probably TV adaptations, there have been television shows based upon his work. It's just, it's wild to see what an influence this guy had. I like to imagine that somewhere in the afterlife, he and Conan Doyle are sort of duking it out to see who's going to wind up with the most number of adaptations. We'll throw Stoker in there too, right? <laughs> yes, definitely. Do not leave out Stoker. They can all have a, you know, battle royale. That'd be great. You guys recommended Dead Eyes of London and Creature with the Blue Hand. And after I saw Dead Eyes of London, which was just a few weeks ago, I was hooked. That was the most fun I have had watching a movie in the longest time. I was just delighted. That makes me so happy. And that... It's one of those subgenres that I love so much and I have such a good time with, but for whatever reason, I'm kind of wary about recommending them to people because it's sort of hard to sell. It's the sort of thing that you either are going to love or you're going to be like, what is this nonsense that I'm watching? <laughs> <laughs> but Because they're like adult comic books where it starts off as a serious police procedural and people are being murdered and maybe there's some kind of criminal conspiracy. And then you have this like assistant who's detective who's like knitting. I love that guy. (laughs) He's the best. That is the most iconic. So Mike, you know, Eddie Arendt is without question the most iconic character of the series. You know, he's... uh... He's on the he's on the cover of the books for God's sake. So I mean, and and yet 
like Sam mentioned earlier, I chose to put a still from him as the corrupt corrupt priest in Hunchback of Soho, which, which is, is another retreading so of, of Dead Eyes of London. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I didn't realize that there was – I'm trying to remember what it was called, but uh, was it Karloff was in a, a version of this as well? Like an early version? Was it Kar- Oh, yeah. Lugosi, that's it's- what it was. Thank you. Yeah, that had two different titles, right? The Human Monster, I think Monogram put it out, and then yeah, and then in England it was Dark Eyes of London. If I'm yeah, that's really that's quite a, quite a good film too. What I was reminded of while I was watching this was the Seijin Suzuki Yakuza films. Just that kind of were messing around with the form and doing things that you wouldn't necessarily expect. Some of those things when, and I know I'm jumping right into the plot, and we'll go back, we'll recap a little bit, but when they're talking about how the dead men who have been dropped in the Thames are floating back up to the surface, and they realize that they must have been laden with salt or sugar, and they pour all the sugar or salt into the one guy's cup of tea, and then they bring the T forward right into the lens, and it's just this massive, extreme close-up. And then you get the music sting that goes with it. Those music stings are life itself. I loved every single time that happened. I loved those goofy close-ups. I loved the the skull on the guy's desk that was the cigarette dispenser. Oh, it's my favorite. I want one so bad. Oh, so cool. <laughs> you cut from that to the black cat thing that is is like the doorbell. Yeah, the doorbell for the speakeasy. Those are what I call vorerisms. Man, you find those yeah. in all of his movies. <laughs> So I watched Dead Eyes, then I went to Creature with the Blue Hand, and then I wrote you guys in desperation, what should I watch next? And so, you know, I love, Nick sends me this email, he's like, okay, well, here's a couple of my favorites, and it's a list of like 25 titles. (laughs) (laughs) That's how it happens, though. That's seriously how it happens, where you get hooked. Like Nick was saying, there are definitely some classics, and I think we picked two pretty good examples from the early period and from the slightly later period. But there are so many that have all of these kinds of touches. And they're just, it's it's almost like if you turned Batman, the TV series, if you combined it with Jalo movies and a police procedural and also the Adams family. <laughs> There's this weird dissonance that goes on in the films because i the first time i tried to watch dead eyes i was watching it and it was english dubbed and i was like "Mm -mm, mm, no so i went out i found the german language track i found the english subtitles i put all that stuff on and then i was happy but then you're watching a German film that is set in London. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All of these characters are working with, you know, Scotland Yard or calling Scotland Yard. You have insert shots of Big Ben and Parliament. <laughs> and you get, like, I just watched uh, The Green Archer last oh, night. Oh, I love Green Archer, yeah. And here you have Arik Goldfinger coming off of this plane. And he's just like, blah, blah, blah. You know, oh, yeah, it's so great to be back in England. And he's saying this in German. I'm like, what? <laughs> Gert is 
so such an such a, a, a sort of hammy villain in that. It's, he's absolutely brilliant. Towards the end of that movie, he's he you know he really knocks it up several notches into super villainy territory. It's wonderful. Well, and you mentioned the and I'm I'm going to fuck up his name, but the guy who was knitting in Dead Eyes, Eddie Arendt. Thank you. I love him in the Green Archer at the beginning when he just turns right to the camera and says, "Well, this will make a good film, won't it?" You know? <laughs> And then at the end, he's just like, oh, has anyone seen a green arrow around? And he turns around and he's got one in his back and it says, end. They're very winking postmodern texts. You know, they've got a lot of uh, self-reflexivity. There's there's obviously intertextuality. I mean, they're they're really, you know, pretty, pretty hip for their time and for now. I, I'm. By the end of the episode, like before we sign off, Mike, why, why don't we I'll share with the, the listeners, like maybe three or four of my absolute favorites. I'm sure Sam can do the same. And and that would be a good starting point, I think, because I definitely have like my absolute favorites, you know, because there are so many of them and they and there are like really three distinct eras, believe it or not. And, and I'm kind of basing that off of uh this guy, I always screw up the German pronunciation, but I'll just, his last name's Kramp. He, he wrote a lot about the Krimis in Germany and he kind of separated the, the Krimi into three distinct movements. And, and I happen to agree with him there. And, and basically it's sort of like a beginning, middle and end, you know, it's, there's no big spoiler there to, to how they're all laid out. What is sad though, is that, yeah, uh, o- over the course of it, just like with hammer, because when you think about hammer, what they start in 57, it's all over by 73, right? 74. And it's kind of the exact same thing with, with the Rialto Krimis. They start in 59. It's all, it's all done by 72, 73. That's, it's really interesting parallel uh, history there. What exactly? I think the decade of the '60s kind of just really put the final nails in these in the crimmy coffin, as it were. These films were a bit quaint compared to Jaws and The Exorcist and, and the no Poseidon Adventure. You know, I would rather watch The Dead Eyes of London than Jaws. I, I, I happen to agree with you, but uh, I, I mean, just in, in pop culture, I think that. Oh, no, I know, yeah, I know. <laughs> that, uh, yeah, I, I definitely, uh, I'm with you on that. I'd rather watch Krimis all day long, but I, I, I you know, I think one of the reasons that they kind of just sort of fell off the landscape and the radar was a, they were just really rifling through their own graveyard in terms of oversaturation to the max <laughs> and remaking every bloody thing. I mean, by the end, the, the, the adaptations were purely in name only. They had nothing to do with the source material and, you know, they just kind of run their course. They have very complicated plots, which I was surprised how much I had to pay attention to the films. It wasn't very easy at all. You mentioned the, the villains and, I was so reminded of uh, Scooby-Doo watching these. Like All the villains remind me a lot, especially with this first one where you don't really know what the person's after, and then you realize it's really a Scooby-Doo plot, the whole, I was trying to scare him off so I could get the gold kind of thing. Those pesky kids. Wait, have you seen Fellowship of the Frog yet? Not yet. No. Oh my god! Speaking oh wait, no, no, I did, I did. <laughs> the mask. It's so. The mask is so great. It's we've talked about how delightful and silly and sort of gleeful they are, but for probably most of your listeners who haven't seen any of these films, I think it's also important to mention that they can be incredibly kind of lurid and violent at the same time. The way that people, like the sheer volume of people who get killed, it's sort of like a slasher movie, but 
usually involving some sort of gruesome kind of gimmick. Poisoning people or stabbing people to death, that's like the tamest thing that happens in these movies. <laughs> like, they're not for little kids. Let's talk about Dead Eyes a little bit more, because there are so many great parts to it and so many things that are happening in this movie. I, I just love it. I, I love the way it starts with the murder, and you've got the guy coming out of the shadows, Blind Jack, who looks like fucking Tor Johnson. Adi Berber. He's the best. He's in so many of these. These crazy, hairy arms that he has, it looks like somebody grafted a gorilla to his shoulders. It's just as amazing. And at first I thought I didn't really see it necessarily. And then at one point when he goes and he's choking our female lead, I was like, oh my god, that's just all hair all over his hands and all over his arms. He's more monster than man. I think like of the kinder trauma that caused in generations of young German children, you know? (laughs) So that's the thing that I love so much about these is that it definitely has things in common with like as a subgenre with Scooby-Doo and with the Batman TV show, the way that the villains are presented. But then there's all this genuinely nightmarish stuff like people get tortured. (laughs) It's just. Oh, yeah. Many traumatized children. When you get to Dibanda de Schrecken, you know, the terrible people, you'll see, you know, there's a lot of the BDSM imagery that you see in, in the face of the frog comes back in that. And in fact, FSK, which was the, um, basically the MPAA of Germany after the Second World War, they kind of put together something sort of comparable to that. They required some edits in that one because it was a bit too, too intense, you know, and, and I do miss, and I, I bet Sam agrees. I do. I always love the humor in the early films, the early to mid films. But I miss the seriousness, though, of the black and white era. Is is you just is kind of it's kind of missing from the color era until we get to the the, the Italian co productions. It, they just kind of get sillier, you know. It does, and in a way, I almost prefer the mix of the early films better because they do have those tongue in cheek campy moments, but they also take their plots more seriously. Whereas when in the second part of this episode, when we talk about creature with the blue hand, it's hard to watch it without just like collapsing into laughter, (laughs) which is and I love it. So I'm not saying that as a criticism. It is nice that a lot of these they're also the plots are a little bit easier to follow if you're somebody who watches a lot of mystery films or reads a lot of mystery novels. There are a lot of Agatha Christie-like plot twists happening where things are just really fucking elaborate. But if you read enough Agatha Christie, you kind of can see some of the things coming. And I, I don't think that's a bad thing. But I do like that the earlier films are much more serious about unraveling those mysteries. And it's not all sort of flying in the face of probability like it does in the later movies. Oh, yeah. What a great way to put it. Flying in the face of probability. Yeah, they, because <laughs> in the earlier films, there's a certain, a certain, you know, there's lots of levity. And there's a certain seriousness, especially in, in Dead Eyes of London. That's a film that yeah. has its its uh, uh, relief valve with Eddie Arendt always providing sort of, you know, the the the, the, the comedy uh, but it, the film really needs it because it goes to some dark places. You know, I, I, I write Mike in, in the book about, uh, 
there's some, you know, I never talk about how the, you know, Second World War is explicitly acknowledged in, in the, the Rialto series, but it does find its way. It's kind of impossible to erase the cultural fingerprints of what had happened in the previous oh, yeah. 20 years. And, oh, yeah. and there are just some, some scenes in there where I found them to be just a little too, a, a little too reminiscent of things that had happened during the war. And these were Fuchsberger, who was, you know, was, also one of the most iconic this you know he was uh you know uh, every able man i mean he was he served in the second world war he was i believe captured in soviet union i better not be telling tales out of school yeah. i forget yeah yeah a lot of them including klaus kinski of course were pow's and what i found out which was uh, very fascinating was that uh, horse tappert had was actually ss you know and this was revealed posthumously after he died it was something he he he'd kept obviously from from the the german public and he went on uh, for, for lis- listeners who aren't aware this is a guy who sort of is became quite popular by starring in several of these crimmies later in the color era but then went on to a television series called derek uh, which was an absolute national treasure in Germany. It ran 25, 30 years, you know, and, and, uh, so it was, it was quite a surprise when it was, it was re- revealed posthumously that he was actually Waffen SS. Which is insane because, and I feel like this is very hard for, more contemporary film audiences or even people who read history to understand, but it's like the sheer number of people who were in the German military and specifically who were in the SS, where does everybody think they went? Most of them weren't killed. Most of them were not executed at Nuremberg. They just were reintegrated back into society. So like the sheer level of, I don't know what the word is that I'm looking for, but the ability to delude themselves as a nation. The Nazis, all they had were the 12 year olds left by, by 1945. It was the Hitler youth trying to defend Berlin. I mean, it was, as, as you yeah. say, every, every able body was conscripted into the military. So your point is so well taken. Where do you think these people went? You know, they, they get <laughs> all fly to Argentina, you know, like, yeah, no, many of them stayed there. And, if, and, 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 if, you know, I mean, that's something I have to have to address in the book is, yeah, many of these people worked for, were, were, you know, writers and producers and worked in, worked in Goebbels' Ministry of Propaganda, you know, and, and what do you expect? That's, this is post-World War. They, they need to have a life. And a lot of them wound up uh, continuing on in the entertainment business in some way, shape, or form. And so that's which just kind why, of what happened. Which is why I think somebody like Arthur Browner is such a good counterpoint to that. Because he was a Holocaust survivor. Basically, his entire family was killed. And he managed to escape because he spent most of the war in Russia. And came back and decided, you know, I'm going to form my own film studio and make these really kind of edgy films that often showed the war in more transgressive ways than a lot of movies were doing for decades, basically until New German Cinema. And I think his main office, he opened in a former factory that made Cyclone B, basically. And so he considered his best revenge against the Nazis 
to thrive and make films and make films about the war. And I mean, he lived until he, he died like two or three years ago. I think he lived to be like 106. So cheers to you, sir. Even if you did make some spinoff creamy films, this dead eyes of London film, it's just so rich. It's so rich with plot twists and it's so rich with just amazing characters. I talked about Blind Jack already. We've talked a little bit about the inspector and his kind of valet slash assistant <laughs> that, that's in this. <laughs> There's Flea Bite Freddy. There's Miss Ward who can read Braille, coincidentally enough. There's just randomly. that, And that happens throughout so many of these movies where a character has some knowledge or some sort of skill that's integral to solving the mystery. And it's like, oh, yeah, of course I can do blah, blah, blah. Like, can everyone? <laughs> There's I'm trying to remember the name of the barkeep who is just he's amazing. He runs the speakeasy. He's got the black cat that lights up when somebody rings the bell. He's got an extra phone line, so if anybody goes to the main phone to make a pay call, he can listen in on whatever they're saying. It's fantastic. You've got Klaus Kinski as Edgar, who wears these mirrored glasses through so much of the film that Vora just loves playing with those mirrored glasses and the reflections that we're seeing in those. Yeah, we, we should talk about Carl Loeb for a second, who was cinematographer on a bunch of these and probably my favorite thing about watching dead eyes of London, but some of these other films that he shot with other, like showing them to people for the first time is people sort of get sucked into the plot and to all the stuff you're talking about this, like everything that's going on. And then they're like, wait, this is actually a really beautiful film. Like, look at all this cinematography. I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't, it's Carl. Thank you, Carl. I've got the uh, the entry for that film in front of me that I had sent you guys, and I, I'm gonna I'm gonna read this one little snippet here, which um, has a lot to do with Carl Loeb, who 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 I think more than any single person is directly responsible for the 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 continuing aesthetic of these films. You know, the the consistency and continuity from film to film. There's no question. I wrote. It's my contention, however, that if selected highlights of the first several Rialto Crimmies were edited together into a montage and screened for scholars, historians, or simply fans of the genre, I'm confident that responses would run from provocative, eye-catching, and atmospheric to bold declarative statements such as works of serious art or the lost films of post-expressionist forgotten genius. Because, yes, the cinematography is, is and, and just the overall capabilities of the technical unit on that, unit that Rialto had that had this sort of like, you know, cottage industry quality to it from film to film. They are gorgeous. If we compare them, if we put them on the international stage, budget-wise, with, with product coming out of the United States, they would be B-movies put out by Allied International, for example, or American International, or, you know, or some of the B-units of the major studios. And yet, I find them to be far more competently, and I'm not picking on Allied or anything, but, but like overall, throughout these films, I see them, they, they are absolutely... They're gorgeous to look at. There's no question, which which makes sometimes when I come across slightly pejorative or full-on pejorative um, discussions of the films, I don't know what planet they're living on. It's so frustrating. Part of the problem is a lot of the time when people are discussing 
cult movie subgenres, for lack of a better phrase, I feel like they go into it with this attitude like, I don't have to take this seriously, and this isn't a real film, this is just, you know, some kind of schlocky bullshit that we can watch and have fun with, but also make fun of. And certainly throughout this episode, we've been laughing at things because there's so much to laugh at, but the film wants you to and does that on purpose. But there's also so much to take seriously and so much craftsmanship. And like, you could watch the scene that Mike just mentioned with Klaus Kinski wearing these shiny aviators and the actual scene is reflected in his sunglasses. Like it looks like it could come out of any sort of classic film noir. Like there's, it's just so gorgeous. The scene in the elevator that they set it up so well to have a character fall through the floor of the elevator <laughs> with the fake paper floor. And then he's hanging there. He manages to catch himself and he's hanging there. And then you get your, to your point about Jallo films, you get these black gloved hands coming in and stepping on the fingers, burning the fingers with the cigarette. It's so gruesome. And then that he falls and you get the noise down below. You don't even have to see the dead body. You just get the noise and the people that come over and look in the door. Oh, it is wonderful. You'll see some more fake floors under carpets in some of these movies. (laughs) They love fake floors, trap doors, anything that you can think of that will reveal something horrible that's about to happen. It's in these movies. I don't want to sound like I'm some sort of, you know, Sherlock Holmes myself, but I'm usually pretty good at figuring out these mysteries. I really didn't know where this was going because they set up so many red herrings throughout this. They really want you to think that Kinski is the bad guy in this for so much of it. And I'm just like, okay, it doesn't make sense that he's the bad guy because of X, Y, and Z. And when it turns out that I was right that he wasn't, I was like, oh, okay, good. They're actually abiding by some sort of logic because there are times where you're just like there's no way that this could happen because to your point these bad guys and it's usually from what i'm seeing just with my limited knowledge of this stuff it feels like there's the bad guy and then there's the person he's getting his orders from especially in something like creature with the blue hand even here with blind jack there was a moment where i think they said he's just following orders i was like oh that sounds very very german of you to say yes and very sinister (laughs) blind jack's death oh my god did that send shivers through my spine One of the general rules with these is the more impressive a villain seems, the more awesome their death has to be. And you also, probably my favorite trope in in these movies, if I had to pick just one, is like you were saying about Klaus Kinski's character here, there's usually the red herring villain which is somebody that the the film makes an effort to have them be so nasty. And you know that they're a terrible person. And when they're finally killed or arrested, usually killed, it's like, yeah, okay, they had that coming. But at the same time, you're like, but wait, if that super bad person wasn't the bad guy, who is? It's the the ne ultra plus of Scooby Doo. <laughs> <Sort of laughs> it definitely is. But and you know we've already talked a lot about Edgar Wallace. I do think we have to give a little bit of a shout out to Egon Ice, who, in addition to having a super cool name (pun intended), he 
also worked on a lot of these scripts and I think took them very seriously. And so when you watch some of the more, and I, I'm a sucker for mystery stories. It's like my comfort food. And I think there are plenty of mystery films that are just so slapdash. It's like they threw a bunch of tropes together and people are getting chased around a house and being murdered. But like he actually took them seriously and was careful about what from Edgar Wallace he wanted to put in and what needed to be changed based on the novel length versus film running time. And it's so they do, I think, genuinely manage to surprise you, even if you are familiar with mystery tropes. Agreed. And when you go from film to film, you know, as, as I was doing over the course of two years, you know, slowly sort of going from film to film, I found that to be very, very true, that there was a lot of careful attention paid to these scripts in the first at least the first half, you know, of, of the of the entire era, you know. Oh, yeah, then it goes downhill a bit. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it, it does. It does start to slide, you know, and at least as as far as as far as what you're talking about, like serious mystery writing is concerned. Actually, I can't wait till we get to the end, because one of one of my favorites, I suspect, might be one of Sam's favorites, too, because it's maybe the most Agatha Christie-esque of, of them, perhaps, I think. I like, too, that they make little references to Edgar Wallace in this movie, that having the name of Edgar as the Kinski character, and then I can't remember, I have in my notes here, you know, Wallace crosses Edgar's name out of his ledger. So I'm like, oh, there's even a Wallace character, too. That's pretty nice. People getting shot in the fucking face, like, multiple times in this movie. Buddy, I'm going to shoot you in the face fucking flamethrower going on towards the end of this movie it's just it just keeps ramping up and up and up this was just a thrill ride watching this i really could not get over it and i i was so happy i love to like the inspector's assistant character sunny is his character's name in here with that fucking bowler hat and isn't there even a time when he will take the bowler hat off and put it over the camera which i love as well yes it's he he makes me so happy to a certain extent he's like the jerry lewis of of creamy films because they always well they always give him these like very physical things to do And I think it has a way of drawing your eye always to his character, sort of like I've always heard these anecdotes about how when Donald Pleasance was cast in a film, he would find something either like eating candy or fixing his tie. He he would find he would find a way to force your eye to naturally go away from the other actors and to him. I don't think Eddie Arendt necessarily was doing that on purpose, but his mannerisms throughout all of these, whether he's supposed to be like the comic, you know, sidekick or not, are just great. Like, he's such a perfect character actor. He's a total scene stealer, but without <laughs> without being the scene stealer. He's not trying to do it, you know? I mean, I mean, I could be naive, but I it just doesn't seem really in character no, with him. I, I think he was he was sort of just sort of naturally suited these these types of roles and of course by the time they get around to to doing a 180 on that it becomes just as interesting all over again i think he left the series ultimately just when he felt he had nothing left really to offer it because the series was kind of you know it was kind of limping by then so yeah you, you almost have to feel bad for fuchsberger who played the lead inspector in so many of these and he's such a good straight man 
he kind of, in a certain sense, can't compete with people like Eddie Aaron or the villains like Klaus Kinski or... It's just like, okay, you're the sort of normal, boring guy. Yeah, Mike, <laughs> exactly. So Fuchsberger, you know, he's 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 usually the lead detective in a, in a good chunk of these. And he he's off, off, often opposite Siegfried Schoenberg's Sir John, who starts off playing the character a certain way and then ultimately starts becoming very, you know, Schultz, Schultz-esque. You know, like, I see nothing. I was not here. I did not even get up this morning. <laughs> And again, Fuchsberger's kind of uh, robbed there because not only does he have to deal with, you know, Eddie Arendt being the comedy, uh, the sidekick, and but also with Siegfried now starting to try and steal scenes as well. So, Oh, and he's great at stealing scenes. So good. I can't <laughs> stand his replacement, though. I really take him to task. I mean, uh, uh, I forget the actor's name. Uh, nothing against the actor, but the inspector, you know, Sir, Sir Arthur, the, or whatever. I just... Oh, yeah. That he's so lecherous and so just i can't stand him he drives me nuts when he's not in the film listeners are probably going what in the hell are you talking about it's just that the character of sir john who's the head of scotland yard is this recurring character in film after film after film and, the, and an actor became synonymous with the role when he left they replaced him with another fine actor but who had an entirely different interpretation and really rubbed me the wrong way unfortunately did you manage to see the, I think it was the last five films that Eddie Arendt made in his life where he was Sir John in a revival of uh, Wallace? Stuff? I know of them just from IMDb and research. What about you, Sam? I haven't seen them either. And I really am. It's like I want to, but I'm afraid to at the same time. Eddie Arendt, is, he is fantastic. I love his knitting and his incredible marksmanship. You mentioned how uh, Fuchsberger plays the inspector and a lot of this stuff, I was really hoping that he and Sonny were going to be the two people that carried us all the way through all of these films. So I was a little sad when that didn't happen, but I do like to your point that they show up in different aspects. So uh, even if I can't get Eddie Arendt as Sonny in, in everything, at least I get him showing up in one of my favorites, Mike, the Inn on the River. There's a great sort of relationship between them in that one, too. Aaron's hilarious in that. Does he keep knitting throughout the whole No, thing? he's he's doing like he's 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 like a he's rowing. He's like Oxford rower in this in <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he, he's always given something physical to do. Like I said, I didn't see who it was that was going to be the bad guy at the end. I really loved I loved, I, and I don't want to ruin the end for people, even though I warned that we would. Yeah, don't, don't. I will just say I loved when there was an accusation made about who was the murderer, and then they turn around and they look through a peephole and get shot in the face, and you're just like, well, you're I like, guess they're Whoa. not the murderer. <laughs> <laughs> so I dedicated the book. I was planning on interviewing her. She is the crimmy queen. And I dedicate, wow. yeah, I dedicate the the book to her. And I was going to interview her, but she, tragically, she died in 2017. The Crimmy Queen is Karen Dor, who had, who had, uh, you know, acted in. Oh gosh, I forget. I think there's either five or six of the Rialtos and a couple of the CCCs as well. She just lent, I think, such a, a, a sophistication and a class and an elegance to the, usually to the, to the, and in some films, she's actually the, you know, the protagonist. Like you said, you just watched Green Archer, right, Mike? 
So she's like the you know the the female protagonist in this film. She's she's extraordinarily. Um, I haven't watched it in a couple of years, but she's extraordinarily capable and physical. She's they have her like going back and forth between these two castles, going through like minefields and gondoling over rivers and everything. I mean, she's like she's up for anything. A midnight shoot, running through the grass, you know, and and in shitty weather, and then the next thing, she's dressed in like Chanel or you know, and look, it looks looks phenomenal. I mean, she's just. She is the Swiss army knife of this entire series. She's she's amazing. She can do it all, and I love Karen Dorr. They do really interesting things with the female characters. I think Dorr is probably the one who is given the most agency and competency, but they often sort of force the main inspector and the female lead to fall in love in a way that it almost seems like they're making fun of it or like they're not taking it seriously and they feel like it has to be in there and everyone's kind of everyone makes jokes about it in the film well that sunny is knitting jumpers (laughs) (laughs) yes it's just like well of course you two are going to get married and have children and here are the two jumpers for that Let's go ahead and take a break, and we'll be back right after these brief messages. Hi there, I'm Chris Dashu. And I'm Jess Byron, and we're the hosts of Scary Stories We Tell, a weekly dive into true crime, the paranormal, conspiracies, and everything else that goes bump in the night. From Kentucky goblins to the death of Paul McCartney to hearing about what keeps Jonathan Frakes up at night and the cold case that inspired Twin Peaks, no topic is safe. Tune in wherever you find your podcasts or find us at scarystorieswetell.com. I know you know who I'm talking about. It's that guy. Yeah, yeah, with the eyebrows, he's, right? He's in a yeah, million the bushy movies. eyebrows. Sometimes they're bushy, but he also sometimes have a mustache. Yeah, well, that, but but he's shaved. Well, he, no, he did. You know who I'm talking about. You see, you've seen the, him in a million movies. We just saw him in that one thing. Yeah, he looks like a pug. <laughs> Listen to me, Chris Gore, and Anthony Ray Bench on the Film Threat Podcast. You got questions. Sometimes we have the answers. Hello, Projection Booth listeners. This is Mark Bigley, the host of Wake Up Heavy Recollections of Horror. You may remember me from Projection Booth episodes on The Antenna, Crumbs, and The Brood. And Mike White himself has appeared on my show where we discussed Eraserhead, Taxi Driver, The Evil Dead, and Shivers. Wake Up Heavy is a show where I talk about movies that blew my mind as a kid. Things like Phantasm. This morning shots are bullshit. Tourist Trap. You are so pretty. Dead and Buried. Welcome to Potter's Bluff. And Halloween 3. A joke on the children. Other guests have included genre film journalists Anya Stanley, Jerry Smith, Sam Panico, and Simon Fitzjohn. Every once in a while, I even convince my own daughter, Cleo, to join me. Hey, that's me. Usually, though, it's just me, a mic, and my memories of some really wonderful horror films. So come check us out. WakeUpHeavy.com, SoundCloud.com, slash WakeUpHeavy, or your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget... Anything can happen when you wake up heavy. No one is safe from the creature with the blue hand. I'm not guilty. 
place is safe from. The creature with the blue hand. in a living nightmare of terror. Kinski, the creature with the blue hand, in color. All right, we are back, and we are talking about Crimi films, and we're going to fast forward a little bit to 1967 and talk about the creature with the blue hand. We've got the same director, and we also have Klaus Kinski in it, though in a delicious double role. He is Dave and Richard Emerson. While Dave is locked up in an asylum after being convicted as a murderer, Richard lives the plush life. Meanwhile, a murderer is wearing a black cloak and a blue metal gauntlet with wolverine claws ready to stalk the family. So, Sam, when did you see the creature with the blue hand and what did you think? I am really struggling to remember the first time I saw this. It was definitely a couple years after my first creamy film. And it was one that as soon as I read the plot description, which you just did great justice to, but as soon as I read Klaus Kinski as identical twins and one of them is in a madhouse, I was like, holy shit, where can I find this? And so I bought a bootleg of it. And I think at this point, you could probably even find it on YouTube. Like this is one of the more readily available ones. And I was so in love with it. Like, as much as I love the early ones, I I think if I had to pick a single favorite, it might be Creature with the Blue Hand, if only because everything imaginable happens in it. It's like, it's based parts of it. It's a gothic horror movie where there's this cursed suit of armor and the curse is going to strike in the family and everyone in the family's fucking terrible and they all hate each other and they're all trying to backstab each other so it's it's like a very kind of gothic melodrama but at the same time i cannot stress enough klaus kinski as identical twins so i've i've done sort of like creamy screenings and lectures a few times over the past years And I did a screening maybe like three or four years ago where I showed Creature with the Blue Hand and people lost their minds. If you're familiar with Klaus Kinski, to see him in one of these movies where he's he's not allowed to go full Klaus yet because he's not famous enough. 
but he can't like keep it all inside. And he's so good in all of these that he's in. But I think this is his shining moment where he has to go back and forth between playing Dave and Richard. And the only thing about this that I'm going to spoil is the twin who is thought to be insane and is in the asylum is of course innocent. And this is something you learn in the very beginning. So I'm not really ruining anything. And then you think, okay, well, maybe he's being framed by his twin brother who seems to be sane, but maybe his twin brother is an ally and he's being blackmailed. And like, you know that something is going on, but to have him go back and forth between playing crazy and sane and sort of seems like he's hallucinating sometimes, it just, it like, it's head spinning in the best way possible. Nick, how about you? When did you catch this one? This was one of the very first ones I ever saw. Uh, I saw this prior to Dead Eyes. I still do. I didn't go last year for obvious reasons, but I go to Columbus every year to stay at my late... Oh, this is going to take a minute to explain. So I I get together with a group of very close friends. Most of them are authors, uh, historians, um, Brian Sen, Mark Clark, uh, Ron Borst, the, the famous movie poster collector, and Dave, David Hogan, Ted Okuda, these guys are like the most erudite, you know, c- cinema pals I have in addition to you, Mike, and, and to you now, Sam. And I, I just have the absolute best time with them. We, I go down uh, over Memorial Day weekend. I stay about five days. Cinevent, which is a, I collect movie memorabilia. I've done that since I was about 18. We, we just, you know, drink and eat bad food and watch movies six, seven, eight a day. Unless, it sounds it, great. Oh, it's the best. Yeah. To me, it's, you know, 10 Disney, Disneyland, you know, I, I just <laughs> have the absolute best time. Sadly, two of the, two of, two of our group have passed away. The host, my, my, my closest friend of the, of the bunch and how I met everybody else was Mark Miller. Also fantastic. I'm sure both of you are very well familiar with his book. It was the only book on the subject for forever and ever. Uh, Mark Miller was the author of Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, uh, you know, a critical filmography of their 22 collaborations together, which McFarland put out, you know, in the 80s. I mean, he was sort of one of the guys that put the flag in the ground when it came to writing about Hammer. We always go over to our buddy Dave Harnack's house and Harnack has what he calls the real time theater in his basement, which is a 16 millimeter theater. I'll have to show you guys some pictures of it. He's got hundreds of 16 millimeter prints. And one of his favorites is, is Creature with the Blue Hand. So he screened that for and one of his triple features one night. And that was the first time I saw it. It was maybe 2012. And yeah, jaw on the ground. <laughs> I was like, for all the reasons that Sam says, as well as the fact that this apple cart is so overflowing with shit. <laughs> It's got all the vorerisms in there. I mean, those parrots, those fucking parrots. Are, you know, he loves his parrots. <laughs> and and it's got all the vorerisms. It's got this sort of, you know, Byzantine plot that's hard, you know, and like and, – and a haunted suit of armor. Just like there's an actual Scooby-Doo, I think, with a haunted suit of armor, isn't there? It is. And um, – Kinski is as you know in dual roles and poor oh what is her name I have to look it up fortunately I have it in front of me poor Diana Kerner you know who's plays Myr- Myrna in this is subjected to so much so much horrible stuff but I think the scene that always got me and I wrote about it in the book was the scene where they're in the asylum and the lower level and you're getting these little peep shows of what's going on into yes. each of the each of the um this uh, inmate cells. That stuck with me and and is one of the things I spent a lot of time writing about in the book, you know. 
So I saw it about eight, eight or nine years ago, and uh, it, it is uh, with Sam. I have to agree. It's it's one of my you know it's in my top ten. So joyful. So Mike, what did you think? I I need to know. I didn't enjoy this one as much as Dead Eyes of London. Well, you jumped. Don't forget, Mike. You jumped a whole like millennium forward there in in crimmy time. Even at this stage of the game, it felt like they were recycling bits from Dead Eyes. Like, I had only seen one crimmy film, and I was like, oh, well, they kind of just did that. I mean, you you mentioned the parrots, and I was like, well, I think there was a parrot in the last movie. Strange, uh, yes, the Strange Countess, they lift up, uh, they lift like a, a huge chunk of the Strange Countess and dump it into blood hands, you know. But it worked. Also, Dr. Mangrove. Nazi supervillain here. I mean, this guy is way, way, way over the top. I love it. Kind of going back to what we were talking about before with the there's always somebody behind the criminal. There's an insane asylum. We should say that. And, you know, which I've kind of already alluded to. And I, we talked uh, probably two years now about Murder My Sweet and the idea of an insane asylum. And like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang also has that. The whole idea of taking somebody that's quote unquote undesirable and locking them up in a drugging them up, putting them in an asylum, and just stashing away somebody, and they're completely powerless. It's like, you know, hey, I'm not crazy. Sure, sure, you're not crazy. And Mangrove, Dr. Mangrove, who runs this place, takes one of his own nurses and puts her uh, in the clink as well, and just like, oh, yeah, no, she's crazy now. She must have snapped because of the pressure. Though that scene that you're talking about with like a Nickelodeon where the guy looks in and he sees the strip tease and like, Hey, you better check this out. You know, the next guy looks in in a cell, the next one that they go to and there's that baby head in there. And you're just like, Oh my God, I just looked at deep red here. This is horrible. (laughs) (laughs) And then they get to the third cell and you see that crazy murderer guy. And I was like, well, it looks like he only has one working eye. And the guy who's going around with the blue hand only has one eye cut in the thing, so he's got to be the murderer. And I was a little disappointed that I figured it out that quickly, but then I was like, okay, no, this is a crimmy, so there's somebody behind him. And then there's the guy behind the guy behind the guy, and it's just like, what? who actually hired Dr. Mangrove to do this? Apple stuff? cart that's just overflowing. I, I have to read to you, but now that Sam mentions it, I've got the entry in front of me. Regarding Mangrove, I wrote, uh, he commits perjury, kidnaps Myrna, orders multiple murders, inflicts insanity upon his nurse, separately drugs <laughs> Inspector Craig and Myrna. One disturbing shot features his monocled visage raising a hypodermic syringe and then depressing it in close-up into Myrna's veined arm and tortures her with rats and snakes all the while gloating at his own wickedness. Now, come on. How yeah. can anybody sort of like say no to that, right? <laughs> Nobody can out-mangrove mangrove. When they had both the rats and the snakes in the cell at the same time, I'm just like, oh, well, that's all food for the snakes, right? <laughs> Waste not, want not. Suddenly, yeah, Vorher decided at one point he wanted he, snakes were going to be a common trope around, around, around now, around 66, 67. He's like, nah, we need snakes. So snakes become. In fact, they actually take shots from college girl murder snakes and put it in like uh, a, another color film that comes after that. They just reuse the same snake shot. I mean, towards the end, it was one of those, like, you pull off the mask and you find another mask under it kind of thing. Like, I wrote, you know, well, the murderer has to be Myrna. No. The murderer has to be Lady Emerson. No. The murder has, you know, just like over and over again. Like, they keep turning. It's that drawing room scene 
you talked about Christy. It's that drawing room scene at the end of this where it's like, and it's you. No, it can't be me. I did this. Okay, well, then it's you. And it's like, wait a second. It was him all along? I don't believe it. I did enjoy it, but yeah, I didn't enjoy it as much as the other one. And then also, because of what I was talking about, I was waiting for Sonny to show up and be knitting something. I was just like, oh, please, 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 let these two characters, let the inspector and let Sonny be in every single thing I see. The shift in tone by then, it's pretty palpable. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it definitely, I was like, oh, well, maybe it's just the color is throwing me off. But no, yeah, the, the tone was very different. I found it enjoyable, but just not as much. That's why when you sent me your list and it was starting with earlier stuff, I was just like, okay, cool, cool, cool. I'll start here. I'll start more towards the beginning and work through these things. And then maybe I'll be able to handle that shift a little bit because, yeah, jumping six years in crimmy time, it was just so wild. Believe it or not, Blue Hand is is definitely – there's a level of of uh, sinisterism, you know. Is that even a word? <laughs> <laughs> it there, is now. There's a level, of, you know. There's like it's 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 a far more sinister text than say like Hunchback of the Morgue, which is you know, it, it, there, and and some of the other color films that are played a little bit more lightly. I think there's genuine scares in in Blue Hand that are great. You know, there's there's, there's yeah. some pop moments where you're that are designed to get you to you know jump a little bit. And then by the end of the film, when we're sort of in you know underground crypts and everything, I think it's genuinely creepy and and I, I it is such a bizarre psychotropic mix of all these different things from pop culture as well as the Crimiverse as well as the late sixties culture you know the the culture that was um pervading throughout europe at that time and, and western europe at least and and you know it's just a big love cocktail i think to the crimmy the the blue hand i think mike you might you might appreciate it more when you see some of the more of the color films and and i'm not picking on them uh, i i like them very much but they are very they are very different you know if you put on yeah, yeah the green archer and then put on something like hunchback of the morgue you're going to you're going to see consistencies, but you're going to see a lot of inconsistencies, too. I like that there was a little bit of that self-reflexivity with the final line of the film. I was like, okay, well, that's kind of nice. I did like, there's a scene, I'm trying to remember if it was in a, it wasn't a bar, but it was a place that our, that Myrna gets lured to. Yeah, it's a bar. Yeah, yeah that's a okay. that's a parrot scene. <laughs> That's probably one of the most tense scenes. And then that room that I think it might have been Richard had with all of the mannequins that were hanging. Oh, my God. That's my favorite scene. But it's so creepy. It's wonderfully creepy. Yeah, and th- that that's one of my favorite sequences of the film when they're sort of running through the mansion and the underground parts and yeah, going from place to place. Yeah, that 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 seems fantastic. That they can't find the guy because he knows the ins and outs of the mansion better than they do. And then they find the map of how you get through all the secret doors that are inside of this, ma- uh, inside of this mansion. That was fantastic. I love that Dr. Mangrove has a reprint of Guernica over his psychiatrist couch. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as I saw that, I was like, wow, I really don't trust you now, doctor. Yeah, no. Nope. Yes, those not so subtle Nazi, you know, overtures are, are there, and it's perfect for his character. He is, you know, sitting there with hypodermic needles, you know. Although he's not the one to actually say it, I think it's oh, I can't think of his name right now. Wonder oh, Pinkus Brown. I think it's Pinkus Brown who actually says in one of these movies, 
we have, and he says it in German, we have ways of making you talk. Yeah. <laughs> but um, Mangrove's pretty close in this with his syringe, you know? And that's the weird thing. Like, I feel like you could watch a bunch of these and have no idea about German history or what the subtext might be. But in so many of these, there is that, like, well, I was just giving orders. We hear it. It's actually vocalized, you know. And and Mike, that also, that, that I bet I bet Sam's written about this in her, her new tome. Uh, there's the Lanzer films as well, which were these sort of, like, exculpatory common soldier films that were being made in Germany after the war too, which was sort of like the, the common perspective from the, the average soldiers, the uh, point of view. They're basically propaganda. You say it much more directly than I do. Yeah. I'm not very good at tiptoeing around. So I am very curious. What are some other crimmies that the audience should check out? And are there any, and you probably will say no, but are there any that they should stay away from? Are there any landmines out there that they should avoid stepping on? I'm sure that Nick will agree with me. And obviously, if he doesn't, he will speak up. But to answer the landmine question, I would say the more obscure of these that might like rehash some of the plots of the best ones, people aren't going to be able to find. So I don't think there's really any danger in that. More and more of them have become available, and there is a surprising amount on YouTube, either dubbed in English, which, you know, ideally you would watch them in German, but hopefully most of what we're mentioning will either be available on DVD or bootleg in some form or on YouTube, but I don't think people will be able to find some of those later, more obscure ones anyway. What titles would you recommend? What are some of your favorites? Well, we've already talked about Fellowship of the Frog, which is a must see and has one of the most, <laughs> one of the most insane, like, you know, maniacal villains, uh, but also insane in a cartoonish way. One that I really, really love, we've talked about the Green Archer as well, which people should definitely watch. There's this one from 1962 called The Inn on the River. The real title is Das Gausthaus under Themse. So there might be a translation that's like The Inn on the Thames or something like that. But it is wild. It's about this serial killer who goes around, like basically swims around in the Thames and kills people. Like he wears a wetsuit and kills people with a spear gun and uses the like the sewer to get away. It, it's basically like uh, that really great uh, Dutch film Amsterdam. It's it's sort of like the proto version of Amsterdam. That's awesome. That is probably one of the next ones I will be watching because I am trying to do these in order a little bit. Do you have any others that you would recommend? If you're trying to watch something a little bit later. I really love this one called The Sinister Monk from 1965, which is about... <laughs> it's basically about this serial killer who wears a monk's robe and kills people by whipping them to death. And Nick, how about yourself? What are some of your tops? Uh, I'm right there with Sam for all the reasons that she mentioned about the Inn on the River. That is, that is you know, that's in, way up there for me. I absolutely love that movie. It's, it's shot with uh, a lot of sort of exterior dexterity. There's a lot, you know, it's one of those films that really leverages Hamburg and the port in really, really, really cool ways. And then cuts in stock footage of London. Because eventually, Mike, they, they, they move the base of operations to Berlin. 
That's why I love the Inn on the River. Now, I am absolutely nuts for Das Indischtuk, the Indian scarf, which is very oh, yes. Agatha Christie-esque. It's, it's kind <laughs> of the locked, locked mansion mystery, Mike. And the, there's this basement when, as the bodies pile up, it, the basement's being turned into a, a morgue, but the basement's also kind of got like a chapel in it, you know? So this chapel becoming a morgue as this, all these wow. people are dying. And there's all these like hidden rooms, you know? And it's kind of the opposite of a film like In on the River, which has so much really nice exterior work. Indian Scarf is just all contained. It's a, it's a, it's a set driven film and an extremely really, it's a real, it's a lot of fun. I'm a huge fan of the first four or five films, you know, from Frog right up to Dead Eyes of London. That that mix right there, those first, including the Red Circle and the Terrible People, I'm, I'm nuts for those. The color era, this is where things get a little little funky with me. I think my favorites are uh, A Blue Hand, which we've talked about uh, immensely. And then I'm a sucker for two others. I'm a big sucker for The Hound of Blackwood Castle, The Monster of Blackwood Castle, which I thought I wasn't going to like very much given the trajectory that the color films were starting to go down. And yet I found it really refreshing and a lot of fun because Sir John becomes the main investigator of that film. So he's put out there as the inspector, which is great. And the other one, and I might take – actually, there's two, and and then I'll tell you what I would stay away from. And I'm picking these out because they're they're kind of like picked on. The least, well, if not the least, one of the most the least liked films is the Gorilla Von Soho, not the Hunchback of Von Soho, but the the Gorilla. It's called Gorilla Gang. I actually love that movie. I, I love it because of its flaws and foibles, and uh, that's all I'll say about it. I think I think its heart's in the right place. And then I would say the last film they shot in Berlin as part of the Rialto production unit is a film called Die Tote aus der Themse, the angel, with the American title, you know, Angels of Terror. And uh, that's the, the last one. And I, I, I thought it was a, a fine send off. I, I went into it thinking, oh, well, this has got to be bottom of the barrel, the dregs, right? Because it's the last film. And I actually liked it. My argument in the book was of the last four films, Three of them are um, Italian co-productions, and I think two of them are really excellent. You know, one is What Have You Done to Solange, which is an outstanding giallo, and this one, Angels of Terror. The two that sort of bumper that, which are uh, Adopia Faccia, Double Face, and Seven Bloodstained Orchids, you know, they're they're acceptable within really inspired moments, I think, uh, giallos. But, I, you know, as crimmies, they're obviously pretty much non-existent yeah. i mean there and that was the problem mike was that these films were were you know marketed in germany in west germany as crimmies and yet they're not they're giallos you know as giallos that's that's really kind of have to i have to look at them so when you approach that phase of it bear that in mind the one film i think is kind of a stinker in the whole whole bunch is um it's actually uh, Vorher's last movie. Uh, even though I think it's you know excellently excellently made, I think it's kind of a stinker. And that's the Man with the Glass Eye from '69. It's got a lot I've of things. Never seen that one. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to jaundice you. You know, it's it's uh it's got a lot of You're making an eye pun on purpose. <laughs> yeah, it <laughs> was not. But thank you for for pointing that out. I <laughs> and it'd be yellow, right? So that's, exactly. Um, I, I, when I write about the film, I, you know, I say I think Vorher goes out with his head held high, and it's it's very it's excellently made. But I just think it's it's kind of just 
it just doesn't hold together as much for me as as some of the other ones. And and then of course the other one that gets picked on a lot is Double Face, Adolfia Faccia, because it's uh, the pace is ultra slow. Uh, in, in you know, but again, these are not crimmies, not in the way that they were defined for you know a dozen years. Yeah, no, it, I don't think those last ones count. I agree. In co-production financing only, that's how they count. You know, that's that's why I had to do them because they were. The co-productions, but the, oh, to me, they're giallos, you know? And they feel like giallos. They also look like them. And then, Mike, it's a big round robin because you go back to those that early stage and you see the giallos fingerprints, you know, kind of like emerging out of the crimmies, you know? so it's. Well, I think that's also why if you're a big giallo fan, that's why it's worth watching some of these. I mean, I think they're worth watching because they're delightful, but... Also, if you like a lot of those tropes, like here's where they came from. Also, to your point earlier about the kind of comparison between Hammer Studios and the Creamy films, we should definitely mention that Christopher Lee is in some of them. And he's in this one that I really like called The The Devil's Daffodil, which is all about a drug smuggling ring and has this sort of crossover. It's like... Chicago meets London is that isn't that the one yeah it's like Chicago meets London meets Hong Kong and there's like there's like a little bit of that like triad kind of yellow peril action and Christopher Lee's in a bunch of those movies but the thing that I find so frustrating and I don't know if this exists anywhere Nick you might know but so Christopher Lee spoke German and wanted to do his own audio And I guess that wasn't possible because of the way that they did the sound recording in studio afterwards. So if you listen to, if you watch Devil's Daffodil in German, it's not Christopher Lee's voice, even though you can see that it matches up with his mouth moving. Like you can see that he's speaking German, but the English language version that I've listened to, it's also not his voice. And this is a totally random aside that no one but me cares about, but, you know, oh, here we well, are. <laughs> absolutely. In fact, my my print of Secret of the Red Orchid, the second, you know, Christopher Lee film, his entire part is done in his own voice in German, if you guys oh, want it. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm so, I wonder if maybe there is like a print of Devil's Daffodil that exists and I just tried to watch it when it was not available. I believe, I have to, I have to double check on that. That was, I watched that one two summers ago. But Red Orchid, for the listeners, yeah, Christopher Lee in this one plays, uh, he's like an FBI agent. That's the Chicago meets London one. Devil's Daffodil is like London meets um, London. Long, yeah, he's in, he's in yellow face in that one, right? Yeah, that, he, he had to do that a lot. Yeah, oh yeah, 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 yeah. The, well, all the way up until, God, what did I see in the theater in the early 80s with Christopher, oh, with, not the Fu Manchu. Yeah, it was the last Fu Manchu yeah. film, wasn't it? Like, oh, yeah, the Jess Franco. Speaking of Jess Franco, he also made a sort of a creamy film, which I don't think it counts. But, you know, if we're mentioning things on the side, Devil Came from Akasava was produced by CCC Film and is based on an Edgar Wallace novel, but feels nothing like any of these creamy films. I, I yeah, I enjoy the two Franco crimmies and the and um, the Death Avenger of Soho. I love them, but I love them in Franco's canon. You know, they're really? they're not like you said they're they're very far apart from this. 
but yet at the same time trying to belong to it in some in some sort of marketing way and endearing endearing yeah they're there he kind of like stamp, he puts his own franco stamp on the crimmy which is which is you know a heart it takes a director with considerable <laughs> um chutzpah. yeah chutzpah to to try and do that and of course franco pulls it off i gotta say though uh mike it's really important that um we mentioned that the there were revivals of these films in the early seventies, but where they really got extraordinary generational traction was through television, both in West Germany and East Germany. And I mean, I interviewed a lot of people and talk, talking, you know, about like how the streets would empty and the mom would say, fend for yourself, peanut butter and jelly. I don't care. There's an Edgar wall. It's crimmy night, you know? So they would go to the electronic fireplace and watch crimmies and, you know, it was like the streets would empty. And, and I'm like, you're kidding me. And they're like, no, it was like, you know, it was like event, event television when there was a Crimi on, when, a Rialto Crimi. And again, because they became so popular in, in uh, syndication and so ubiquitous over the decades, they got two parodies in the, in the 2000s. The Vixer, you know, which is the... It's a euphemism for jerking off. I'm trying to think of what the... Uh, the, the, der, the Whacker. Whacker, it's that's it. Thank you. Thank you. Der Vixer is der, the Whacker... And then they did the the sequel to that, newest noise von von Vixen. <laughs> I've only seen the first one, but I have to say I, I laughed like I was watching Airplane. I absolutely loved it. Every minute of it. Yeah, I really need to see those. People like Sam and I who who know this series backwards and forwards, these films are made for, for people like us, you know, who get who get every little joke. Um and Mike, hopefully you'll be there once you start watching more of these because I mean it is it's really funny. Yeah, next year we can do a Vixer episode <laughs> when Mike when Mike has seen them all because I I can see you falling down this hole. This is a hole I want to fall down. I really I can't thank you guys enough for introducing me to this. And this is one of those gifts that the podcast gives is just being able to have conversations and talk about films that I probably never would have seen otherwise. Like. It's great to read a book. It's great to read an article, but then to motivate myself to do this, I have to set up a podcast. And it's just like, for fuck's sakes, I got to do, <laughs> you know, I, I need to do this. What are the ones that I should watch? You guys gave me some great titles and I will be forever grateful for this. And Sam, I read your article after watching uh, both of these movies. It gave me a lot more to look at. I can't wait, Nick, for your book to be out. When is it going to be out? So, yeah, I'll, I'll tell the name again. Uh, it is uh, German Popular Cinema, because I write a lot about that as well. But the focus is on the Krimi, German Popular Cinema and the the Krimi phenomenon. It should be out by the end of the year. The manuscript is out for peer review right now. And then the, the usual process after that, you know, edits, proofs. And so should, I would think by the end of the year. Uh, and um, so exciting! Yeah, well, thank yeah. you, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that very, very much. Thank you. And Sam, when is your new book coming out? Before I talk about my book, there's one really important thing that I had at the top of my notes that I wanted to mention and didn't get a chance to. That is, will take a second. But so earlier we were talking about how there's this very tightly knit group of people who work on these films and. One of my favorite of them, who we haven't mentioned, is the like they're basically, especially the early films. the The composer, the musician who scored these, his name is Heinz Funk, and I just need everyone to know that. <laughs> like that is the man's real name. 
I sadly did not get to write about Heinz Funk in my book, which is called The Legacy of World War II in European Art House Cinema. And that will be out from McFarland in the spring. Like it's up for pre-order now, but I don't know the specific date. Fantastic. And I've seen the cover and I was drooling. I still can't believe that it's coming out. So hopefully I will not drop dead before then. Nick, what are you eyeing for your next project? Are you going to start covering those schnitzel westerns? Oh, nothing, man. <laughs> you know, two two books back to back pretty much killed me. Uh, working full time, you know, it's just it was, it was a bit much. Um, I think if I do something next, it'll be something shorter, perhaps a chapter in an anthology or something like that. But I don't know. It's a good question, Mike, because you're right. I usually do have something percolating in the back burners, whatever, you know, and right now I am so thoroughly <sighs> spent, you know, um, that I don't, I'm just not going to think about writing for a while. I sort of really need to replenish the well of ideas. And, and um, I mean, it's always good to know that you can still pull the plow. You know, I, I, I started from a standstill on this, you know, my, my book on Spanish horror, I had recycled dissertation material in it, about 20% or something like that. So I had a head start. With this one, it was just, you know, research a subject, find out what's been written, try and fill a gap, get the money, go to Germany, do the research, watch the films, and 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 having watched a few of them. And as I said, you might you might say that maybe, and I say this in the book, maybe the idea for a full, uh, a full uh, book length, study of the Krimis was born in when I was in my twenties in the nineties, um, reading film facts uh-huh. because I couldn't find anything about it, it was pre-internet, you know, there's no internet then and, and, uh, or internet 2.0 that we know that that wasn't a thing. And you'd go to the libraries and, you know, you go to the card catalog and find Krimi. Yeah. Good luck. You know, can't, <laughs> could, could barely find anything on, you know, Hollywood cinema. <laughs> so I, it might've started then. So you're right. I, sh- I probably should have an idea what I want to do next, but I don't. I really don't. I wish I had that problem. Well, let's not make it another four years between your appearances on the projection booth. Yeah, no, no. I'm, yeah, absolutely. It's an honor to be here with you both, and thanks for having me, Mike. And Sam, do you have any other projects that you're working on? Because to your point, you do tend to have quite a few irons in the fire. It's terrible. I told myself, like, finishing the book last year was exhausting, I think mostly because of quarantine making everything exhausting. And so I told myself that I was going to take this year off from writing a book. And of course, I already started working on another book. And for me, I have like, usually different levels of projects, like, usually I'll contribute chapters to uh, like, book compilations, or I'll be working on sort of like a shorter form book, like I've been working on a book on the tenant for a while, but that probably will be pushed back until next year or so just because of the, like when the publisher needs it. But uh, yeah, I, I love that movie so much, but I, my brain just was like, Hey, here's this long form project. That's going to require a lot of research and you should start working on it. Well, thank you so much again for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.